0: What makes it dangerous is all the things you don't take seriously individual officer skill level and not on what the officer perceives his skill level to be. You have to be able to quantify that in real time with your own physical capabilities and the capabilities of your weapon system, increasing your chances of survival. Welcome to surviving the street podcast episode number seven on this episode I will be discussing what the likelihood is that an excellent officer physically fit mentally alert and following departmental rules and procedures would still be killed. Referencing a study published by the FBI in 1992 regarding officers who were feloniously killed in the line of duty, I'm going to paint a picture of some of the commonalities found in these killings in order to develop a deeper understanding of why police officers are killed. Of course, there are many different variables that lead to an officer's death, and it's likely impossible you can account for all of them. But what makes this study unique is that they didn't just look at the circumstances surrounding the incident itself from a physical perspective, but they also interviewed fellow officers or supervisors known to the officer who was killed. This is unique because it's information that is hardly, if ever, sought after. I believe that although this study isn't necessarily large, it can provide valuable insight that gets us closer to the why. The pool of people interested in the why regarding police tactics, training, or marksmanship isn't all that big, so if that's you, you really are a part of a very small, unique percentage of people. The FBI conducted a study of officers who were killed over a three-year period, which was published in 1992. During that study, 54 officers' deaths were analyzed, which involved 50 offenders. All information concerning the incident, victim officer, and offender was retrieved. Interviews of the victim officer's peers, supervisors, investigators originally assigned to the homicides, and other officers who had knowledge of the events were conducted. This study also included interviews of the offenders themselves. More importantly, this study was an attempt to answer the why from the offender's perspective the officers were killed. Answering the why in this context should have or still can be used to formulate policies or procedures to mitigate what can now be foreseen challenges. As the listener or student, if you will, you can use this information to make decisions, maybe personally or professionally, that will increase your chances of survival. Because as we all know, your survival is dependent on you and isn't the responsibility of anyone else. Law enforcement really is about increasing your chances of survival, not only from a physical perspective, but nowadays in other ways as well. I often tell other officers in more of a funny, jokingly kind of way, policing is like boxing. Protect yourself at all times. Information also found in the study that I specifically won't talk about is offender demographics, family history, criminal history, weapon usage, which was 72% of the time a handgun, or the offender's involvement in prior shootings. You won't know any of that information, and even if you did, it shouldn't change the way an officer should approach these situations because it's always fair to assume everyone is trying to kill you until you determine otherwise. In regards to the scene the officer was on or responding to, 39% involved arrest of crime in progress situations, 22 were traffic stops or pursuits, 13 disturbance calls, 11% handling, transporting custody of prisoners, 7% investigating suspicious persons, and 7% were related to other circumstances. In previous research I conducted of officers killed from gunfire in 2019, the majority of those killings involved a call for service, or 911 call, along with traffic stops, vehicle pursuits, and suspicious persons or circumstances. There was some data collected regarding the time of day the officers were killed in the study, but the way the data in this category was analyzed is overly complicated to explain and even more complicated to understand. It is worth noting that the fewest number of officers were killed between the hours of 6 a.m. to noon. So not only is day shift better for your physical and mental health, but at least in regard to this study, you're less likely to be killed before lunchtime. The offenders in the study were asked what, In their opinion, the victim officer could have done, if anything, to prevent their deaths. You should consider the fact that since the offenders are criminals, they are not necessarily credible or reliable sources of valid information. In my experience, officers can go as far as using a suspect's statements about what they would or wouldn't have done to justify tactics. One quick example is a suspect who says he was planning on fighting the police, but since the officers used a dynamic entry method utilizing speed, surprise, and violence of action, the suspect was discouraged from doing so. Whereas the same suspect was actually going to walk out of the front door when you asked him to, as they almost always do. The point is, careful consideration should be made when validating tactics based off the bad guy's statements. 47% of the killers in the study stated that there was nothing the victims could have done to prevent their deaths after the initial confrontation with the offender. When I hear nothing they could have done, that sounds like an ambush and ambushes were not factored into this study. I can't help but picture the type of person saying that as a career criminal sitting behind a piece of glass, communicating on a phone wired to the wall, feeling like this is another opportunity for him to live up to the person he wants people to think he is rather than who he actually is instead. Additionally, 8% of the offenders felt that if officers had been more professional, these officers may not have lost their lives. However, none of the offenders were able to articulate what was meant by professional, which shouldn't surprise you and doesn't surprise me either. I define professionalism as many different things, including appearance, character, demeanor, how you communicate, and how you respond. This requires looking the part, acting the part, being the part, and treating people with respect. Looking the part takes the least amount of effort, and it doesn't require any special skills, just a little thinking on your part. It starts with your physical appearance, that means do you look physically capable, followed by your uniform. I'm not talking about a nice stack of ribbons, a shiny badge, your tie perfectly clipped to your shirt, the third button down from your collar, or the stress of your boots losing their shine, where you look like you're going to an interview instead of going to work. I'm talking about your equipment, your magazines, the carriers, your belt setup, a plate carrier over a soft vest not only possessing these types of items, but how they are actually situated on your person. Equipment can give at least, at a minimum, the appearance of your capabilities. Whether or not you are actually capable at this point isn't relevant. If you're a cop and you're listening to this podcast, you are probably the type of cop who knows exactly who I am talking about. And you should consider helping me continue to produce podcasts by engaging in any way that you can on whatever platform this podcast is reaching you on. We are a small percentage of people who resonate with this information, which means it'll take a concentrated effort on your part to find more people just like you. The truth is there are way more cops on average that enjoy looking the part again, just because it's easier and comfortable, versus actually wanting to go train and maintain skill levels. Personally, I have always felt like appearance was important. It's the very first opportunity you have to make an impression on the bad guy, and if he has a tendency to do anything other than comply, he's probably sizing you up and factoring in his chances at winning. I believe that a professional appearance coupled with a first impression can convey a sense of authority and competence, potentially deterring criminal behavior and de-escalating confrontations. They know what kind of cop they are dealing with when you are overweight, boots are untied, and there is no chance you could get to your taser on your belt if you wanted to, and in my experience, that has influenced the bad guy's behavior. This aligns with my methodology that the little things can make a difference because all the little things add up. What is your demeanor when engaging with these people? Do you look prepared? Are you aware of your surroundings? Have you already allowed the suspect to go in and out of the car several times? Have you said or done anything to demonstrate any amount of control? In three cases, the offender stated that if the victim officers had identified themselves as law enforcement officers, they could have prevented their deaths. None of these three victims were in uniform at the time of the killings. Defenders in these incidents claimed that non-uniformed officers were mistaken for private individuals who were perceived to be threatening their person or property. I don't exactly know if these officers were on or off duty at the time, but I'll cover both realistic scenarios while we're on the topic. You're probably aware of no-knock warrants, especially in the recent years of high-profile cases surrounding these types of warrants. A no-knock warrant is issued by a judge that allows law enforcement officers to enter property without immediate prior notification of entry. It is issued under the belief that any evidence they hope to find may be destroyed between the time police identify themselves and securing the area, or in the event where there is a significant perceived threat to officer safety during the execution of the warrant. On December 19, 2013, a suspect shot an officer entering his home with a no-knock warrant. He said he thought his home was being burglarized and a grand jury decided that was a reasonable assumption and decided not to charge the suspect. That seems to be much less of an issue now in most parts of the country because body cameras and department policies usually requiring many different layers of identification. In recent years, no-knock warrants have gotten a lot of attention. Brianna Taylor was highlighted as a no-knock warrant, and the major dispute in that incident was whether or not officers knocked and announced their presence prior to the breach. A no-knock warrant was issued in that case, but because some of the facts and circumstances surrounding the potential occupants and the location Officers changed it to a knock and announce and claimed to have both knocked and announced. I did a full debrief and critique on that incident using the actual evidence that was found and that video can be found on my YouTube channel at Concepts underscore group. Charges against the officer who shot the suspect were dropped and he also used the same defense. If you happen to be off duty and subject to the victimization of a crime, the offender may be less likely to shoot you knowing you're a police officer because of the heightened level of seriousness associated with that crime regardless of whether or not it is actually any more serious, either perceived or legitimate, than the average citizen. One incident I am familiar with involved two robbery suspects already out on bond for aggravated robbery when they approached two males outside of a strip center in their continuance of their ongoing robberies in the area. During the commission of that robbery, the suspect shot two males. One of them was left in critical condition, and the other one was killed. The male who was killed was an off-duty New Orleans detective. I don't know the details of the interaction and one of the problems in regards to real information and finding details is that we almost never know any certainties on the outside looking in but if the cards are stacked against you identifying yourself could be a plausible deterrent another major consideration is asking yourself while off duty is it absolutely necessary for you to get involved with a crime occurring in your presence a recent incident i am familiar with with an off-duty deputy he exited a business late at night with his wife and once outside he could hear the sound of grinding metal near his truck in the parking lot it was the sound of three crooks sawing off his catalytic converter the deputy saw the black nissan Altima backed up to their vehicle and two men underneath the truck the deputy gun drawn approached the suspect's dark tinted windows As the deputy closed distance, the suspect began shooting through the vehicle, striking the deputy. The deputy was able to return gunfire, striking the two suspects, but the deputy was immediately mortally wounded and was killed. Two of the suspects arrived at the same hospital where the deputy was taken to and were arrested. Which, depending on the seriousness of their wounds, they probably wouldn't have done that if they would have known that they had just killed a deputy. I am quite sure before arriving at the hospital, they had come up with a story about how they were victims of a shooting, and they somehow didn't see anything and don't really know what happened. The third suspect was arrested later that same day. All three suspects were charged with capital murder. I remember seeing the surveillance video so part of this is based off memory but if i am not mistaken the suspect shot through his own window as the deputy was within about arm's reach of the door you simply have to be able to identify the tactical disadvantage you have in this scenario multiple suspects known to be violent during this particular crime approaching a vehicle you can't see into no body armor closing your reactionary gap and not clearly identified as the police. The only way this works out is if the suspect doesn't resist and drive off. Or you somehow get compliance from three career criminals in the middle of committing an organized crime who, if they weren't gang members before, might be now, all by yourself is a hail mary act of survival based on chance and not tactics, techniques, or procedures. Again, you have to be able to recognize that and make different decisions. It is probably a good idea while off duty not to involve yourself with any crime that isn't an attempt to prevent serious bodily injury or death and instead be a good witness. You should be asking yourself not only what the proper course of action is in these scenarios but also thinking about what you are going to do next if this or that happens. Oftentimes with officers approaching vehicles, usually before it's necessary to do so, they end up standing at a window they can't see into, at a door that is locked, getting dragged by the vehicle if it is unlocked, or placing themselves in positions to have to shoot into the vehicle when they don't have any idea who's inside. If you think the answer is approach the vehicle, then ask yourself what you will do if the door is locked. If the answer is, I don't know, or I'll attempt to break the window with the magazine well of my pistol, then you probably shouldn't approach until you have that part worked out. Some offenders in the study responded to this phase of the study by indicating that they felt that they had the tactical edge over the officers even before the officers were aware of the imminent threat. It does seem obvious that the offender would feel like they have the tactical advantage over the officers if the officers don't know there is an imminent threat because as the attacker, you do have a tactical advantage in that scenario. As cops, we're always reacting to action, and action always beats reaction. So in terms of an attack that isn't known, sure, we don't know there is an imminent threat, but we should always be preparing ourselves as if there will be. Again, ambushes were not part of this study. In my opinion, anything outside of an ambush means you have a chance where the outcome isn't solely determined by luck, the suspect's ability to set a proper ambush, or the suspect's commitment to finish what he started. In these cases, the killers did not shift the blame to the officers by stating that the officers could have taken an alternative course of action to prevent their deaths. Again, this sounds like ego-talking, and if there was nothing they could have done, then those are ambushes. This is the opinion from the perspective of an offender without any police training or understanding of capabilities, protocols, procedures, or policies. For example, I'm sure there is more than one case where an officer could have placed the suspect in a compromising position at gunpoint before approaching, or waited for backup to make contact with the offender, or approached a scenario with a person who was either known or said to be armed appropriately, which is probably with lethal coverage from a distance, where, at a minimum, you can begin to gather intel from the suspect's behavior. Since we know that the closer we get, we begin to start closing our reactionary gap on a situation where a suspect always has the opportunity to act first. So to say there was nothing they could have done is easy to do in hindsight without the right information. And the incidents themselves actually revealed the killings were often facilitated by some type of procedural miscue, an improper approach to a vehicle or loss of control of a situation or individual. In combination, these factors combine into a deadly mix of an easygoing officer who will use force only as a last resort with an offender of aberrant behavior in an uncontrolled, dangerous situation. In other words, not meeting or exceeding the level of force used against the officer and what I commonly see in officers is waiting way too long to use force or not using force at all. In these instances, because the officer has allowed the situation to degrade beyond their skill level, the ability to control the situation or prevent deadly force has been lost. A common example is where I see a suspect with a knife or a firearm. The suspect has already demonstrated his capability and willingness to use the weapon, and instead of deploying less lethal option immediately, officers sometimes wait until the same criteria is met for the other officer to engage with their firearm. In the killings of the officers, the offenders stated that they were primarily motivated out of fear of returning to jail, which if you kill a cop, it seems obvious you will at least end up in prison, except for probably much longer than they expected, had they not. This motivation, combined with the officers' inability to handle conflict, appears to be the more likely influencing factor that led to the officers' death. The behavioral descriptors of victim officers were frequently similar in that they were characterized as generally good-natured demeanor and more conservative than their officers officers in the use of physical force if you follow my Instagram page at kinetic concepts underscore group you have seen me post about how I don't believe law enforcement is actually that dangerous what makes it dangerous is all the things you don't take seriously fitness complacency mindset training a study published in 2006 showed 36 of 50 officers in that study experienced hazardous situations where they had the legal authority to use force but chose not to shoot They averaged four such prior incidents before the encounters that the researchers investigated. While there is definitely something to be said in regards to just because you can doesn't mean you should, there is also something to be said about not acting when you have the legal authority to do so. It's not uncommon to see officers allowing a situation to deteriorate to the point where they are now forced to act from a more difficult tactical situation. Maybe that is allowing the suspect to close distance or even feeling like they have to wait to be shot at to apply deadly force. Instead of getting ahead of the curve, they are actually placing themselves further behind. I once heard a phrase that said, the higher your skill level, the longer you can allow a situation to degrade before acting. I resonated with that phrase and reflected back on my own experiences using force and found that statement to be accurate in the context of, In this situation, I allowed the suspect more opportunity, whereas another officer with less training and less experience may not have. However, the ability to do that depends on the individual officer's skill level and not on what the officer perceives his skill level to be. That means in order to know how far you can allow a situation to degrade, you have to be able to quantify that in real time with your own physical capabilities and the capabilities of your weapon system. The best practice for achieving those known abilities is through training where you are exposing yourself to situations that more closely replicate real life. There is also something to be said about having done it in real life. Both methodologies allow you to build expectations and both contribute to defining your line in the sand, as they call it. Just like an active shooter chooses a soft target, a location where they perceive there to be little or no resistance from achieving the objective, it makes sense that an offender, knowing his actions in one way or another, will result in his own death or life in prison, would also act on an assault or killing of an officer when they perceive there to be little or no resistance. On August 16th, a Harris County deputy was shot on a traffic stop. The deputy conducted the stop and, while at the driver's window, indicated to the driver that there was an odor of marijuana coming from the vehicle. The suspect acknowledged that he had a firearm and there was another occupant in the front passenger seat. If you are by yourself, now may not be the right time to alert the suspect to the fact that you know there is criminal activity afoot. Now the suspect knows you are probably getting him out of the vehicle, which if he is committed to getting away or fighting, he will be less likely to comply. A more appropriate tactical course of action is to slow play the situation, allowing the suspect to feel as if you may just check his ID and let him go. And while you are walking back to your car, you call for backup and don't approach the vehicle again until it gets there. This tactic works the same if you discover somebody in the vehicle has a warrant. By doing this, you are buying yourself time, creating distance, or keeping your distance while you increase the number of good guys present. However, after the deputy confronts the suspect about the odor of marijuana, he walks to the right rear passenger door in order to retrieve the firearm where the suspect stated he had placed it. And when the deputy opens the dark tinted passenger window, he gets shot two times times in the chest and the vehicle drives off. The suspect was later arrested and the deputy survived. That is a tactical error. That is a procedural miscue, which, as indicated previously, is usually found within the scenarios of officers being killed. In this situation, would the offender say there was nothing the officer could have done to change the outcome? I guess technically, by definition, this was an ambush, which occurs when a person is lying in wait to conduct a surprise attack. And it's true that at the start of gunfire, there was nothing the deputy could have done to stop the suspect's behavior and the deputy's survival at that point was determined by luck. However, since there were procedural miscues that placed the deputy in the ambush when perceived threats, in my opinion, should have been recognized, then I wouldn't consider this an ambush. I'm sure the same or very similar situations have happened many times in the past and will continue to take place. And in those situations, nothing bad will happen. But the outcome or end result of the scenario doesn't necessarily validate the tactics. You could do a cartwheel through the threshold your whole career and maybe nothing bad will happen to you. But that doesn't mean that doing cartwheels through thresholds are now a great idea. Was the suspect in this case sizing the officer up and weighing his chances at being able to get away? Would the suspect had not attempted this had the deputy waited for backup? Of course, there are cases in which the officer made all the recommended moves yet still died. But the FBI is finding repeated accounts of sloppiness as it gathers the killer's accounts of the final actions of many of the victims. The FBI reported that between 2000 and 2010, 107 officers fired their gun and still died. I don't know how many of those officers fired first or how many of those officers were immediately mortally wounded. On the data collected by the FBI in 2019, there were 1,019 officers that either killed someone, caused serious vital injury, or discharged their weapon and missed. Of the 1019 officers involved in these incidents in 2019, 10 officers reportedly fired their gun and were still killed. This means that in 2019, if an officer fired their gun at all, regardless of hits or misses, they had a 99.02% chance of survival. This is why I am extremely heavy on tactics for law enforcement with emphasis on placing yourself in a position to arrive at marksmanship. When you focus on how you get there, it usually affords you the ability to shoot first, and if you arrive and shoot first, it is extremely unlikely that you will be killed, because as I have stated before, incoming gunfire is usually self-correcting. In the stories of officers killed or shot that I mentioned in this podcast, none of them shot first, and at least two of the three didn't shoot at all. Of the officers I personally know who have been killed since I've been a police officer, two of them never drew their gun and none of them were able to fire around before being mortally wounded. I would encourage you to think of the officers you know who have been killed and do your own research to see if they were reported to have exchanged gunfire or fired first. You will be hard pressed to find an officer that has. I know they are out there, but it is extremely rare. This, of course, can be a much longer conversation where we talk about training, tactics, marksmanship, and decision making. So what is the likelihood that an excellent officer, physically fit, mentally alert, following departmental rules and procedures, and not making procedural errors would still be killed? In my opinion, very unlikely. If you want to support Kinetic Concepts Training Group, check out the YouTube channel Kinetic Concepts underscore group and the Instagram Kinetic Concepts underscore group. If you want to be notified for upcoming training, head over to kineticconceptsgroup.com and subscribe to the site. If you're looking to schedule a T-Cole certified tactical training for your department, you can send me an email at instructors at kineticconceptsgroup.com. We got coming.